You're listening to the Alan Carter Show on Global News Radio 640 Toronto. A beautiful, sunny Tuesday in Toronto. Alan Carter's on vacation. So, Edward Keenan, in with you. We've got uh, a ton of things to talk about. John Kretchen, I think it's good news. His hospitalization is just precautionary, we've heard. He has a kidney stone. They're going to remove it in Hong Kong. He'll fly back, but it's likely that he's just fine. Ross Perot, on the other hand, has died. And I will always remember him from the debates. I was a kid at the time, but just getting into watching politics kind of as a sport, especially when debates were on, election campaigns were on. And Ross Perot up on those stages talking about the giant sucking sound, taking all the money out of the United States and funneling it down into Mexico. He was an anti-NAFTA candidate. Uh, he had all these charts that he would point to and all of that. Maybe, in some ways, paved the way for Donald Trump in sort of being the protectionist anti-Mexico candidate. But certainly a person who made a big impact on American politics from the outside, even if it didn't wind up electing anybody, he shifted the needle a little bit by getting one in five votes in that election that saw Bill Clinton elected president. A lot of people thought if he hadn't run, then George Bush would have won a second term. Although I've heard people say, if you look at the detailed polling information and all of that, he was drawing just as many votes from Bill Clinton. He was bringing new voters out, but still... A fascinating life that he led. Closer to home, you know, Kawhi left. We talked about that yesterday. You know, how are we ever going to get over this guy? Our sports love affair has sort of ended. If you're a bandwagon hopper who needed a rebound relationship, last night, Vladdy Guerrero Jr., who's long been heralded as the next great Toronto sports superstar, Blue Jays, prospect who's now a rookie just lit it up and provided a show at the home run derby my kids and i thought we'd put it on and you know they were kind of like what's a home run derby what's going on is this like the slam dunk competition at the nba all-star game and so then we started watching it and then we're just riveted the second round because he had to beat two other people head to head before he could go to the finals and in the first round if you haven't heard already He broke the record for the most home runs in a round. Then in the second round, he tied his own record, but the guy he was up against, Peterson, also matched him, and then they went into three tiebreakers, and then Vladdy finally moved on, and then he was so exhausted, he lost in the finals. And sort of just lost in the finals. There's something fitting about that as a Toronto sports story. He, he hit 91 total? 91 total home runs. Wow. And, yeah. and Which is like... That's very tiring. More than like a third of baseball teams collectively a hit all season. One baseball reporter I was reading was saying, I've never seen somebody hit 91 home runs in one night before. And then he said, nobody ever has. When Vladimir Guerrero Sr., his dad won the home run competition. He hit three home runs in the final round. It was like you would hit 16 or 17 or 19 on the day, and that would be enough to win. Wow, times uh, have changed. And 91 home runs to win it. Kind of fitting, in a way, as a Toronto sports story. And the Raptors and Kawhi broke this mold recently, but many of our legendary sports moments are about heroic performances, great moments that somehow fall short of actually winning. And that's on the kind of exhaustion. He lost to a guy who hit like half as many home runs as he did on the night, but hit more than him in the final round. Anyway, 
That may well turn out to be the highlight of this year's Blue Jays season, because it's that kind of year for the Blue Jays. So let's savor that. Let's see, what else have we got here? My colleague Ben Spur in the Toronto Star today has a sort of a big idea for fixing Toronto. There's a series that they're running in the Toronto Star. And what he's suggesting, and a bunch of transit experts he talked to are suggesting, is what's actually coming. It's not just an idea. The success of the King Street pilot is having them looking at ways, not necessarily to do exactly that, but to make small fixes to speed up transit routes all around the city, bus routes, streetcar routes, and all of that. In some cases, it could just be better signal priority. In some cases, it could be a dedicated lane, maybe at certain hours of the day to get express buses through and stuff like that. But I think as much as we talk about cars versus transit or streetcars in this city, the city's kind of full. Car-wise, we're not making any new roads. And so we got to find ways to get more people moving faster. So I'm enthusiastically in favor of that. More King Street pilots, please, all over the city. That will also give us lots to talk about in radio, in newspapers, because it's always good grist for the mill. On a related infrastructure story. You remember there was this guy who took matters into his own hands and built these steps at a park because the city wasn't doing it because they said it was too expensive. And then there was a guy recently who filled in potholes himself. And now the latest sort of DIY infrastructure story in the Toronto Star today is also on a street in the beaches, someone has painted their own parking spaces. Is one of these residential streets with street parking, but with driveways. And so there's an area between two driveways, and nobody's owned up to being the one who did it, but a lot of neighbors said, you know, often selfish people will park in the middle and take up both spots, or sometimes people will park and block the driveway. So somebody went out there and painted official-looking white lines on the road to mark two parking spots there. The city says, don't, don't do that. Don't, don't, don't build your own (laughs) traffic signals, please. But I'm sure there's a lot of people out there like, how many times might you have wished that you could do that? There are lines painted on the street for a reason! (laughs) Let's go finally before the break to one more story. That's what I imagine... Scientists were saying, and this comes to me via the National Post, it's originally a Washington Post story, but scientists who are studying the sort of melting Arctic glacier ice, the glaciers have been frozen up there for hundreds, thousands of years, and they have pieces of moss and stuff stuck in them, and they've found a few cases where the moss that's trapped in there still has green on it, and if they put it in nutrient-rich earth, it will grow new plants. And there are single-celled organisms in there that they were studying that they see the same thing, like little amoebas and stuff. And then under a microscope, they see, holy cow, it's been in here thousands of years, still alive. But even those researchers were surprised when they found an organism with a brain and an anus, an actual animal, a worm, in a 41,000-year-old chunk of ice, 41,000-year-old worms, and when they thawed out in the lab, they started wriggling, they were still alive. And so, if we're in some dystopian climate change future on the horizon, 
in addition to all the mass extinctions that are coming, who knows what kind of species revivals. Are there mammoths in there? Are there dinosaurs? Is Walt Disney in there? The thousands of year old worms, they were on the earth at the same time as Neanderthals. That's pretty cool. Yeah, and yeah. still alive after all this time. It's amazing. Uh, so, as I say, even the scientists there, fascinated. <laughs> No matter what government is in office, one of the perks that they take full advantage of is that whatever government policy they have that is going to be spending money, the ministers and the local government representatives and often the leader, the prime minister or the premier or whatever, they go visit a riding, they've got the big checks to hand out, it's a feel-good moment. If you're there and you live in that riding... There's jobs coming, there's new facilities coming, there's new infrastructure coming. And, say, Justin Trudeau, for example, gets to say, yeah, just another benefit of having the Trudeau liberal government in office. When Stephen Harper was there, I remember all this infrastructure signs that were up. It's sort of what governments do. But as global correspondent David Aiken is reporting today, with an election on the horizon only months away... This kind of taxpayer-funded spending spree or appearance to showcase a spending spree takes on a different hue. David, welcome to the program. Yeah, and you set it up really nice there, Ed. It is something that all governments do, and I've been tracking this, these spending announcements. i got a special Twitter account, if you want to fire it up, called Ottawa Spends, just as you'd spell it, Ottawa Spends. And I've had it there for, you know, eight or nine years. And I track every single spending announcement the government makes. There's been about, I don't know, we're on 14,000 spending announcements for the current parliament. <laughs> uh, the, um, the, the, the Harper government before that, I think they hit uh, somewhere around 12,000. So the Trudeau government is going to do better than the Harper government. And these are where, as you just said, MP shows up with a check from the federal government, says, aren't we great, and hands out a check. It happened just yesterday, uh, just up, what was the neighborhood called? Um, Marco Mendocino, who's uh, the MP for Eglinton Lawrence, Julie DeBruzen, she's the uh, member for Toronto Danforth. Yep. They were at a, a development in DeBruzen's riding, and what Mendocino was doing was, hey, here's $5.5 million to help fix up some residences, do some energy retrofits. Great. Now, they made that announcement there was DeBruzen, there was Mendocino in DeBruzen's riding. The money is actually going to get spent. Some of it in Toronto, some of it in, in Hamilton, some of it in Kitchener. But they chose to announce this in DeBruzen's riding. Why is that? Her, <laughs> here's the reason. Her riding is Toronto Danforth. That used to be Jack Layton's riding. The NDP held it in 2015. DeBruzen was an upset winner. And if Jugmeet Singh and the NDP got any game at all, that riding, Toronto Danforth, is one that DeBruzen is going to be fighting to hold on to. So every little extra isn't Julie DeBruzen a great MP, which is exactly what Marco Mendocino said yesterday. 
you know, that's great. Here's another example. It doesn't have to be spending. Jean-Yves Duclos is the Minister for Social Development. And he's in Pickering, if not right now, very shortly. And in Pickering, he's going to be telling everybody about the new first-time home buyers programs that the Liberals brought into the budget. There's no spending announcement. He's just there talking up, selling what was in his budget. Who's the MP for this particular place where he's at? It's Jennifer O'Connell. She's the uh, for Pickering-Uxbridge. She, too, has a target on her back, this time from the Conservative candidate. This is a riding in the Ring of Toronto where... You know, conservatives would be going to gunning for liberals. Could Dukla make that announcement anywhere else? Sure. Why did he have to go to Pickering? Well, Jennifer O'Connell needs help. Why not an Ajax where Mark Holland's the MP? He might need help. So we're tracking all these. And, uh, and again, we're in this new period right now. It's an official pre-writ period. There's a new law, new elections law changed by the liberals. As of July 1st, there is, for one thing, no government advertising. So no, you know, independent government advertising is allowed to be placed on the radio and TV on anywhere. That's suspended. All political parties have special restrictions on the advertising they can do. There's a spending cap. This is for third parties and political parties. But ministers traveling around the country on the taxpayer dime, no restrictions. And just looking at yesterday's uh, you know, itinerary or today's, I'm just giving you a couple examples where are these ministers showing up. They're showing up in battleground ridings, ridings where there's a definite challenge to the liberal that holds it, or it's a riding that they want to steal somewhere down the road. It's hard not to notice the pattern here that the ministers happen to be showing up where the liberals have some definite political interest. And just to clarify, I think this is the important distinction, and it, it can get lost in the haze of how politics is conducted. But it, it seems like, in principle, and I think it's an important principle, there should be a distinction between government business and campaigning. And these people are traveling sort of on the government expense account, the government business hmm. spending account. But what they're doing appears to be pretty transparently campaigning for the election before it's been called, right? I mean, that's what it appears this to me. Yeah, it's really one of these glass half empty, glass half full. When we actually get to a writ period, and, and the writ period, folks, for those who just want to refresh that policy class, that's when the Prime Minister goes to Rito Hall, comes out and says, the election campaign is on. And that's probably going to happen somewhere around September 1st or the second or third week in September. And then there's a whole new bunch of rules. And, and so far as ministers doing what they're doing now, they can't do it. They can't say, you know, Marco Mendocino with Julie DeBruzen is announcing $5 million. Yes, they can't do it. But they can do it now. And again, this is something that, you know, I said 14,000 times it's happened during this Trudeau government. This is what, you know, MPs do when they're not in the House of Commons. They run around the country handing out checks. And their name's on a press release. There's a media advisory, and they put stuff on their social media accounts. You know, they want to let you know what they're doing, and then they want their name attached to it. So is that campaigning? This is where, again, glass half full, glass, glass empty. I'll tell you what, though, because the conservatives sort of got, like, they were a little too not subtle. Um, mm -hmm. The conservatives would actually show up at uh, government events wearing conservative, wearing T-shirts with conservative logos on them. Like, that's okay, kind of, right. clearly you're campaigning, right? The liberals, when they got into office, said, that's ridiculous. We're not going to have any more of that. And they brought in these new rules, which they said would level the playing field, would, would take out this partisan pre-election nonsense. You could make the argument that the conservative, the liberals are pretty much doing what the conservatives are doing. They're just a little more subtle about it. <laughs> They're not so overt. But the point is the same. 
they want voters in Toronto Danforth, in Pickering Uxbridge, wherever they might be showing up to associate a particular government program with the Liberals. And, you know, if you, as voters get that in their head, they go, oh, gee, I really like those first-time homebuyers programs, and uh, maybe I'll uh, vote for uh, the Liberals. And, again, think of Pickering, too, the, the whole, you know, suburban area around Toronto. Uh, there's a lot of homes going up. A lot of first-time homebuyers are looking around and makes sense for the minister to show up there and, and sort of talk about this great Trudeau liberal government program they got going. But, yeah, and they're always sure to invite the local MP who's in a tough battle so that they can get their faces. Well, only if the local the MP team. is a liberal. <laughs> right, right, yes. Right. And so this, this is the other thing. The rules are there's never an opposition MP, never, ever, ever gets to hand out a check, even if that money's being handed out in a riding that is held by a New Democrat or by a conservative. If, they're spending, if, the, if the government is spending money in a riding they don't hold, it's a minister. That's who shows up to try and sort of make the point that, eh, nudge, nudge, wink, wink, maybe you should elect a liberal and uh, more money coming down the pike. Now, David, you kind of hinted at the, the problem with a lot of these things is that the solution, if we wanted accountability in law, is that the party in power has to implement it. And as you said, the liberals did change some of the rules to try and take away some of these powers, but then you see the same government who will rewrite those rules will go out and find the loopholes and exploit them and exploit all the things that they didn't change. There's no mechanism other than the ballot box at this stage for people who might want accountability for this, right? Like, we would need basically the next government to change the laws even further. Right. Well, there's a few things. First of all, this is really the role of the press, the role of a political reporter like me is to point some of these things out. That's the first thing, making sure voters, you know, they know what's being sold to them. But yes, you could talk about some changes. And one of the changes, again, I noted that is happening now that's brand new by the Trudeau liberals. They capped advertising right now. They, they've put a, a cap on advertising. And that hurts the conservatives more than anyone else because the conservatives, they raise more money. And remember, no corporate or union donations. This is just individuals writing checks. They raise more money than all other parties combined. They have like $20 million in the bank. They love to be advertising like crazy right now ahead of this pre-writ period. But there's no way the liberals or new Democrats could match them dollar for dollar in advertising. So what the liberals did was put in this this really drastic advertising cap that basically, you know, we're spending to the lowest level. And the conservatives don't like that. They, they'd say, you know, these ministers, you want to go and campaign on the taxpayer dime and run around the country and hand out checks? Fine. How about we get to spend whatever we'd like on uh, advertising? It's all raised, again, not from corporations, not from unions, not from uh, NGOs. It's individual donations. So that's one way of sort of saying, well, evening the advantage that the government right. has. The other one is saying, if we're going to have a pre-writ period like we have now with special restrictions, then we ought to take all the names off government press releases. It's just, for example, the Department of Infrastructure is announcing something in the riding of Toronto Danforth, and we don't put Julie DeBruzen's name or Marco Mendocino's mm -hmm. name on it. It's just a bureaucrat who hands out the money. Those sound like interesting ideas, but I, I am glad, at the very least, as you said, that we have the press and we have you keeping an eye on this stuff. David I'm, I'm Aiken, obsessive about it, Ed. Obsessive. <laughs> he is. He's the chief political correspondent for Global News. And you can see the fruits of that obsession, not just at our website, but at the Twitter account, at Ottawa Spence. David, thanks for walking us through that. Yeah, have a great afternoon. No problem. All right, you too. David will have an article outlining some more on that topic, if you just can't get enough, posted later today, headline, 
is as the official pre-rip period gets underway, Trudeau's cabinet ministers hit the road on your dime to talk up their programs in potential swing ridings. Some people seem to be in a bad mood on this beautiful day. It's because controversy doesn't take a rest. Before the break, we were talking about political controversy, and now we move into the world of entertainment, where, as always, there is also politics. Cineplex Odeon has decided to give a limited-run screening in a certain number of cinemas across the country to a low-budget anti-abortion movie called Unplanned. We've got a little clip of the trailer. I'd be the youngest director in Planned Parenthood history. You'll actually be in charge of the abortions at your clinic? I have a chance to make a real difference. No matter what you do for the rest of your life, you're still going to be a baby killer. I take it that that last sentiment is basically the takeaway message of the movie. That's what I understand in response. Vicky Sparks is the global <laughs> pop culture expert and film correspondent in the studio. Is that have, have you seen this movie? I have not had the pleasure. They, funny enough, don't screen these movies for critics. So <laughs> I have not had the pleasure of seeing what sounds like a subtle and nuanced film. All right. We also have on the phone Ariel Fisher, who's a freelance writer, editor, and podcaster on film from Toronto. How you doing, Ariel? Very well, thanks. Thank you for having me on the show. And yes, this definitely seems like a subtle and nuanced film with no agenda. (laughs) So, stemming from that agenda, quite a lot of people, especially pro-choice activists and women in this country, have said, why are you screening this? Why are we giving a platform to what is essentially a low-budget propaganda film? And Cineplex Odeon, who declined our request to come on the program, but the president and chief executive officer of Cineplex Canada has said, basically, we're an exhibitor. We put movies on. You decide whether to buy a ticket. Isn't free speech wonderful? That's their response. Yeah, I mean, listen, I think it's a fair question as to why they're putting this movie in theaters. Now, Cineplex has chosen to air it in 14 theaters uh, across the country, and then there are about 10 other independent theaters that are are showing it as well. So that's 24 theaters out of about 3,100 that uh, 31 screens that 3,100 screens that uh, Canadians have across the country. So that's less than 0.1 percent of all the screens. But some will say that's still too many, and I think that that's fair because you're exactly right. This is not a film that is out there for entertainment value. This is a propaganda film. And I think that most of this controversy has come from the need to sell tickets here in Canada. I mean, in the States, it's a different issue. Abortion, they could not be a bigger hot button issue. You will get people into the theaters either enraged or fully supporting this movie. Here in Canada, where abortion is overwhelmingly supported by the majority of the population, it just doesn't automatically get people filling those seats the same way it does there. And they want to make money. (laughs) Right. A lot. What a lot of people have said is like, oh, great, you're an exhibitor. People choose whether to buy a ticket or not. We just put on the show. And they point out that, like, I don't have the official figures in front of me, but probably 90 percent of Canadian produced films don't get a theatrical exhibition. So, Ariel, does it just boil down to this controversy equals some ticket sales? 
I think it's a bit more than that, and there's a lot more at play. Um, even if you look at Unplanned's website, um, they promote theater buyouts. That's a large, and, and a lot of that is coming from various different church groups and the finance, like the people financing this film. Um, they even offer free kits to the first 250 groups who offer to, ha- like, who try to organize this as a group buyout. So there's a lot of money going into this that's actually making it less accessible to the general public and more accessible to a niche group of people, basically the choir to whom this film is preaching. So I think it becomes less of an issue of, you know, people, for the most part, yes, as Vicky said it, you know, Canadians are largely in favor of abortion, and they're going to put their money where their mouth is, and they're not going to try and support this film. But for the most part, that's not going to make a big difference to a film like this, because they have financing behind it. These films always make a killing, without fail, and a large part of that is because very wealthy donors are willing to buy out theaters completely, even if they're at less than 50% capacity at the end of the day. I don't have a particularly sophisticated understanding of how the theater exhibition world works, but it does also seem to me, though, that you can rent a cinema for a private screening of a movie that's not getting a release. So is there some advantage to the filmmakers of somehow securing these... I, I guess it's just more advertising. Yeah, at- and I, th- I think to Ariel's point, these films have a built-in market. They're not necessarily, you know, their their kind of ginned-up controversy here in Canada is not to attract, you know, the 77% of people who don't agree, uh, who agree that abortion should be legal. They're not looking to fill those seats with those people. They're not looking to change anybody's mind. They're looking mm-hmm. to have an opportunity to talk about their cause in the media and fill the seats with people who already agree with them. Ariel said it best. These are movies that are preaching to the choir. So Vicky and Ariel, I'll ask you the obvious question that kind of stems from that, which is, have we just actually helped fulfill their mission here? Like if getting this screening is basically about teaching the controversy to the whole city and the whole country, us debating it here, people who show up to protest it, who, who draw attention to it, is that actually what their plan was? I think to an extent it kind of is, but at the same time, we're in a particular time and place, historically speaking, where we're trying to be as outspoken as possible about issues that desperately need our attention. There is a very real risk of abortion becoming completely outlawed in the United States, which would put women across the country at risk, but largely women of color and women um, from impoverished backgrounds. So it becomes this kind of strange targeting. And this, a film like this champions that. It champions it with rhetoric and it helps reinforce negative, false, preconceived notions. I think by protesting it and by standing up against it, yes, there's an aspect of kind of, I guess, a self-fulfilling prophecy. But if we approach it correctly, and if we try and open a discourse and a dialogue, maybe, you know, despite them not trying to change any minds, maybe we can. You bring it, raise a good point there, too, which is that from the movie theater here, this isn't just a pop culture or an entertainment debate. This is a, a live political issue. It often seems dormant a little bit in Canada, mm-hmm. the issues there. People shout about it. But in the United States, in many states, we've seen more and more restrictions. There's a fight right now for the Supreme Court to try and overturn Roe v. Wade. And so, so there are real stakes to this issue. I can see a much lower stakes. But Rebecca, my producer there in the next room, spent all kinds of time preparing for this show, preparing a list of movies that had previously been controversial and banned and all of that. 
So we're going to have to save that research for a different segment because <laughs> we're just about out of time. But Vicki and Ariel, thank you so much uh, for thank joining you. me and talking about this today. Thank you so much. Looking across the vast expanse of the Atlantic Ocean for an issue that basically (laughs) spans that, maybe more literally than we usually think about. Sir David Attenborough recently warned in the House of Commons in the UK that climate change is going to cause great social unrest. But there is a group in the UK that thinks that they have a very specific thing that regular people can do that can actually contribute to helping. Anna Hughes, a campaigner for a group called Flight Free UK 2020, explains what it's all about. Flight Free is an international movement um, that asks people to take a year off flying, so no flying for the year of 2020. Um, And the idea is that we're trying to inspire behaviour change. Um, It's also trying to get the issue of the climate impact of aviation out there. So if someone takes a year off, then the hope is that they will discover things in new ways and discover different ways of traveling that perhaps they might enjoy more. Which uh, sounds great for your trip to New York City. Earlier this year, I flew to London, England, and I different ways of traveling would have been an entirely different vacation, which maybe is something we want to start looking into. We have one more bit of audio. Tim Johnson, the director of the Aviation Environment Federation group based in London, England, breaking down some of the numbers surrounding climate change and civil aviation. It's a huge issue. It's maybe 2% of carbon dioxide emissions. It's the figure the industry likes to quote and gives you the impression that this is an issue that's perhaps quite small and quite manageable but actually it's the direction of travel that the aviation industry is going in it's typically growing at five to six percent per annum globally in terms of its passenger numbers it can't get anywhere close to that in terms of the emission reductions and efficiency improvements it's making so its carbon footprint is growing year on year only this year we saw it reach the one gigaton mark The person who brought this story to our attention and can unpack it a little bit more for us is Global News' Europe correspondent, Redmond Shannon, on the phone now. Redmond, welcome to the program. Good afternoon, Ed. So we heard a little bit about what Flight Free UK is there and about why people would want to do it. Is this something that's taking off? Uh, To pardon the pun. (laughs) Or staying on the ground, I guess, would be the... uh... Exactly, yeah. it's, It's inviting puns, really, isn't it? I don't think it has taken off. I think... Uh, perhaps it is warming, they're warming up the engines of this as a conversation here and uh, across the developing world in Canada too, because it's it's a, a glaringly obvious thing that contributes to greenhouse gas emissions, you know, no matter what what we want to uh, tell ourselves, it's a big chunk of the pie. So as you'll hear, have heard Tim Johnson there say, yes, 2% of global greenhouse gas emissions are from the aviation industry, give or take. But for those of us who might fly regularly or semi-regularly here in Europe or in Canada, it's going to be a much bigger slice of the pie. Now, you, 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 it, come, it can be up to maybe half of your annual 
uh, carbon mm. footprint can come from travel, and most of that is from flights. I flew to Canada last month. That, when I plugged it into the uh, World Wildlife Fund's calculator, added a huge amount of carbon to my annual um, carbon footprint, and that was a little shocking. And that's what made me think about doing this story and finding the people like Anna, whom you heard there, someone who hasn't, she hasn't flown herself for 10 years, so she's well ahead of the curve. This is something that's starting to be talked about. And as you mentioned there right off the top, Sir David Attenborough mentioned it, mentioned it to um, a House of Commons committee here in London just today. The thing, though, too, is that it's growing because the airline industries have made air travel more possible for more people. I flew to London, England earlier this year, and while we were there, we flew to Dublin. We originally hadn't considered flying to Dublin because we're not that sophisticated European travelers. Uh, we were looking at other options, a train or whatever, and then we realized, oh, you can fly for 25 bucks. That's the thing. And we're not at that level of discount here in North America yet, but still at the same time, you can fly to New York now for 300 bucks or less on some of the smaller airlines, WestJet or Porter. So it's becoming more and more affordable, but the carbon footprint has not changed. No, and it, it's changed only slightly. So the, what Tim was alluding to there is that year on year, the industry is becoming one, one and a half, maybe maximum 2% more efficient. But the passenger numbers are growing 5% or so in, a, in the average uh, year. And over the last six years, the uh, a number of passenger kilometers flown across the globe has increased 50% just in six years. So there's only one way it's going, and there's no way technology can counter that. And as we have these, uh, the Paris Climate Accord, so many climate change targets and emissions targets that countries have to meet, it's completely impossible to do with the aviation sector. And many sectors, like we all, we all know, we're probably going to be driving electric cars in the near future. But electric planes are, in the distant future, a technology that is only in its very infancy. So now, how many people have signed up for this flight-free pledge so far? Do we know? Yeah, so the target for Flight Free UK for for next year, that is, is 100,000 people. They've only so far had 2,000. So this is a tough fight for people like Anna who is are, you know, leading the way and really doing it because they really believe in it. But it's so many of us, as you say, in, you know, who can afford to fly, it's so affordable. And mm. it, as you mentioned, in Canada, it's not as cheap as it is in many or other parts of the world. Like you said, here in Europe, in the States, it's very cheap too. In uh, East Asia, it's extremely cheap. Australia, Canada, probably uh, by, for various reasons, which people always complain about, uh, that uh, it isn't quite as cheap there yet. And that could be perhaps a blessing in disguise when it comes at least to emissions coming from the aviation industry. I've heard from people who are concerned about the environmental effects of, say, eating meat, that they don't just completely give it up necessarily, but they're like vegetarians until dinner time, or they're vegetarians five days a week or whatever. And I wonder if maybe stemming from the awareness of something like this flight-free thing, if maybe more people would get on board to not fly for a trip less than 1,000 miles or 2,000 miles or something like that, where it's like if you can drive it in a day, you're going to take the bus or drive or take a train, whereas if you have a reason that you need to go overseas, I don't know if that helps at all. Yeah, I think so. And I think that there are alternatives. I mean, it's easier um, when you're in Europe because Europe is so crammed together. And even in the UK, we have the Channel Tunnel and you can be in Paris in a couple of hours on a train and your carbon footprint is so much lower. 
But if you want to get from Calgary to Toronto, well, you're not taking the train and you're almost <laughs> never driving unless you're moving to Toronto. Uh, so it's it's very difficult when our entire lives and our entire world is sort of set up around travel for business, for vacations, you know, and we, we just we take vacations for granted now, most of us who can afford it. Um, and we don't think about that slice of the carbon footprint that um, comes from that big flight we might take once or twice a year. Redmond Shannon, thanks for giving us an opportunity to think about that slice of our carbon footprint. Something for everyone out there to think about and maybe, as I say, some kind of like travel diets or uh, or exploring different ways or different kinds of vacations. Maybe I think certainly big businesses could get into the idea of teleconferences and, and things like that. I'm out of time to talk about things. More to say, have you? 